like to speak this morning a little bit about what's probably the most difficult part of the practice, and that is applying it and living it in one's life outside of the retreat situation. As difficult as it is here, with a tremendous amount of support, it's obviously going to be more difficult when you leave. There's a certain implication in that understanding. The implication is that it will take at least as much effort as one has generated here to begin to live the Dharma in one's life. And I think often people create a fragmentation of understanding, separating spiritual meditation practice, you know, as what happens on retreat, where where there's a lot of energy and a lot of effort generated. We try to really pay attention in a very careful way, moment to moment. And then somehow think of the rest of our lives as being different than that. And so not making the same quality of effort to be integrating this understanding. And that creates a, a problem, you know, when people leave retreat. The same amount of effort is needed to pay attention. We'll pay attention in slightly different forms. You're not going to be walking down the streets of Boston, Boston lifting, moving, placing. You could try it, actually. (laughs) It would look a little odd. It's not the proper form. It doesn't mean that we abdicate our effort to pay attention. So what I'd like to do is to try to suggest a few ways which will support the continuation of right effort. And keep in mind that just as on retreat, in our lives as well, outside, without effort, nothing happens. We can't expect the seeds of wisdom, of compassion, of understanding to actually grow and be nourished unless we keep watering them. It requires ongoing effort. One basic suggestion, which is the foundation of our ongoing practice, is to undertake the discipline of a daily sitting. There's no way to emphasize enough how important that is. Just to get into the habit of sitting every day. Perhaps as soon as you get up in the morning, get up early enough so that you can sit for 45 minutes or an hour, however long. This takes effort. It's not easy to do, although from this perspective of having set seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day, it seem like an hour or two is nothing. It's very difficult. <laughs> and those of you who are old yogis know how difficult it is to sustain the regularity of it. It has to be given a high priority in one's life. It has to be felt to be so important that we arrange our lives, we arrange our schedule around that daily sitting time. It will be of inestimable support for you. You know, we get so busy and this this culture of ours is so speedy 
that unless we take the time just to sit quietly on a regular basis, we get caught up in this whirlwind of speed and activity and we lose our balance. We lose that sense of awareness and sensitivity. Sitting every day. A common mistake that people make and something that weakens our resolve in this regard is when we begin to judge the quality of our sitting. It's going to change a lot. It'll change a lot certainly from how it is on retreat. And just day to day it will change a lot. You know, sometimes you'll sit down and the mind will click into a clear space and be mindfulness will be strong and the concentration will be there and you'll feel great. Other days you'll sit and you'll be wandering the entire time. Don't judge it. Just keep doing it. Because if you get into a judgment of it, the, the tape in the mind runs, you know, what's the point of this? I just sat and I was wandering the whole hour. I might as well have slept. You know, and it's a tempting, a tempting alternative. <laughs> it's just a trick of Mara, you know, the, the personification of ignorance. Be watchful for that so that you don't believe that part of the mind which is saying, this isn't worth it, I might as well do something else. Sitting every day, keeping the regularity of it, the discipline of it, over time has a tremendous effect not only on the deepening of one's sitting practice, but it begins to permeate the rest of one's day. Sitting once a day is survival. It's just absolute survival. (laughs) Two hours a day is better. (laughs) Three hours a day, you're doing great. (laughs) But once a day is really minimum. The first foundation of mindfulness in, in the Buddha's description, in the discourse that he gave on this practice, which is called the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the first foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the body. And it's a tremendously skillful area to cultivate, and it's one that can easily be applied in our daily lives. Paying attention to the body, really getting centered, staying grounded in the sensations, in our posture, in our movement. You may be walking down the streets of Boston or wherever, you know, and there's no need to go lifting, moving, placing, but we can be aware just of our body stepping. We can actually be doing the walking meditation, staying focused, staying centered, feeling the sensations of the movement, not you know, in a tiny microscopic way, but also not having our mind just scattered and spaced out and lost in our, in our plans or our expectations, whatever. Using the body as a way of staying mindful. As Sharon mentioned last night, it's not that it's difficult to do, it's difficult to remember to do. And the more we practice it, the more it becomes a habit for us, a wholesome habit. You can begin to single out particular acts that we do every day with a specific intent to actually zero in on them and pay quite specific attention. You know, brushing your teeth, simple thing, or or washing, or combing your hair, or opening doors. Pick out a couple of activities that we we do throughout the day with the intent to really 
be very mindful. It may take only 30 seconds or a minute, but it's a reminder of that level of attention. And we find that as we pay attention to our body, we begin to we begin to understand how to regulate our effort and energy in any particular act. Often when we're not paying attention, we are overexerting, which is a cause of tension and fatigue. Just a simple example, which I've experienced, and perhaps you have even this situation or analogous ones, very often, you know, just brushing the teeth. And when I am wandering and not paying attention, all of a sudden, you know, I start holding on to the toothbrush like it's an electric uh, jackhammer. And I'm holding, holding tight. And then as soon as the mindfulness comes in, oh, you become aware of that. You become aware of that tightness and the tension and the holding and how much extra energy is being used. And it gets soft. We can soften our dance through the world. We can soften the way we move. We can soften our relationships if we're paying attention. Use the body in terms of walking, in terms of picking out special activities. You know, you could play a little game. Pick one activity a week. You know, you're the thing of the week that you're going to be really mindful of. And every week, add one. By the time you come back here, your NPMs will be way up. <laughs> you just keep adding things until the mind is in the habit where that becomes the natural mode rather than something we have to make a lot of effort for. Use the breath a lot. You know, even if it's just for a minute or two. At different times, and we feel that we're getting rushed or, or tense, there's a lot of activity and our mind is scattered or spinning, just take a minute, two minutes, three minutes, go inside and just feel the breath happening. It's an extremely calming, tranquilizing activity. And it will be more apparent that it's so outside of the retreat in contrast to what's going on around us. You'll see very clearly how calming it is in the midst of a whirlwind of interaction and activity just to take a minute or two, go to the breath. That can be done many times during the day. It becomes an anchor for us. It brings us back to actually what's happening. I'm not sure the <laughs> of what what's involved in going from the space of listening to this and maybe thinking they're nice ideas and actually doing them. But whatever it takes, <laughs> let's see if you can reflect on what it takes you know, for each of you to kind of think of the things that will help you carry the practice and go from the space of acknowledging them as a good idea and actually arousing the intention, yes, I'm going to do that. Because it's only if we continue to develop the right effort does the practice actually bear its fruit. Working with the body, working with emotions, that's something that comes up a lot in our life outside. You know, we're interacting with people and there's a lot of interpersonal relationships and often we find ourselves caught up in a, in a strong emotional reaction or response. 
Sometimes they're pleasant ones, sometimes they're wholesome ones, sometimes they're unpleasant and unwholesome. How to work with them? I'd like to suggest a model which you can experiment with. For me, it's been very helpful. Usually strong emotions come as a response to a certain situation. There's a situation, there's the emotional response, and then there's how the mind is relating to the emotion. There are these three things. There's the situation, the response, how we're relating to it. I'll give you an example. Some time ago, something happened and there's a situation and it just made me very, very angry. This anger was just filling the mind and body and it's like everything was revved up going a million miles an hour. And I'm noting anger, 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 anger. Why did that stupid person do that? And, you know, going just going around and around between the situation and the response. And as long as I kept reflecting and referring back to the external to the external situation, it kept feeding the emotion. I went to sleep that night, I was still buzzing. The energy of that anger actually woke me up. You know, about five in the morning and I was still buzzing. And then there was a certain switch. Instead of looking at the situation and how it was causing this anger, I shifted perspective and started looking at how the mind was relating to the anger. From that perspective, the external situation had no relevance at all anymore. didn't matter. There was no longer a thread of blame to some other person or to some other circumstance. It was simply looking at how the mind was relating to the anger. It was a totally internal process. And in that shift of perspective, it made possible the letting go of the identification with the anger. And the whole thing, which had been going most of the day before and through the night, the whole thing fell away because it was no longer being fed. As long as we are putting out our tentacles, our threads, to the external circumstance, so long are we feeding particular response. If we change our perspective, it's as if we're asking ourselves the question, how is the mind relating to this? How is it getting hooked? How is it getting identified? Not so much to be looking for an answer, but rather just to change the place from which we're looking. It's an extremely effective way of beginning to see that emotion, whether it's anger or fear or sadness or loneliness, or if we're caught in you know, tremendous happiness or excitement, whatever it is, so that we're looking at it in terms of how we're relating to it. And in that way, it makes possible the feeling of it, the being of it, without identifying with it. And so we don't have that sense of being stuck or lost or overwhelmed. And then it's possible for all of these responses to arise, to be there, and to pass away with a real ease. Many life situations outside of retreat provide an opportunity to develop this kind of mindfulness. To use these times, these are not, these situations that we find ourselves in are not times that are outside of practice. They're the very, they're juicy. (laughs) We can learn a lot about our minds if we make the effort to pay attention.
It's also essential as we begin to apply the practice that we pay attention to our actions. That we really give some wise consideration to what it is that we're doing. You know, you've seen in these last ten days how conditioned the mind is. We do so much out of habit unknowingly. Through the practice of awareness and just paying attention to the decisions that we make, the choices that we're making, and to bring some wisdom to those choices, to, to reflect, is this skillful? Is this a wholesome act? Where is it leading? What is it developing? What kind of mind state is it fostering? As we bring some discriminating wisdom to our actions, then we have the possibility either of going with it, if it seems like a, a skillful thing, or restraining the mind, saying, no, that action is not skillful. The mind state involved is not a wholesome one. I don't want to be developing it. We restrain ourselves. Paying attention to our actions has two, two aspects. One is paying attention to how it affects us right in the moment. Now, what's the quality of mind in the moment? And the second aspect is giving some consideration to the long-term effects. So instead of our instead of having tunnel vision about our lives and what we're doing doing in our actions, we begin to open up, we begin to expand our vision. We can make it very expanded. We can see or, or think of not only the effect of our actions in this life, but perhaps many lifetimes. What are the results of what we're doing? It gives a context of meaning for our life choices. The basic precepts provide a guideline, you know, a kind of framework for this wise reflection. If we've undertaken to follow the five precepts, then as we begin to do things, we can measure, you know, is this action within that or are we, is this action actually breaking a precept? And it will, it will awaken us. Doesn't have to come with a lot of self-judgment or self-condemning or rigidity. It's simply a question of waking up to what we're doing and taking responsibility for the fact that our actions have consequences, both for ourselves and for other people. All of this is part of making the Dhamma practice alive for us that it's not simply a question of coming to retreat. It's a question of how we live our lives, how consciously, how creatively we're living. The gift of having the seed of Dhamma within us is the most, most precious gift that we have all received. It's like we each have the seed of understanding that awakening is possible. Now we've begun actually to walk on the path. There should be tremendous respect and tremendous appreciation for that seed of understanding within us. Because without it, we simply go around and around in a blind whirlwind of conditioning. The power of awakening, the power of awareness is very rare and is very precious. So we need to cultivate it in all of these aspects of our lives. It's not just a question 
of sitting here. It's a question of how we live. We develop metta and compassion and forgiveness. These are tremendously softening qualities of the mind. And they can be cultivated like every other aspect, like mindfulness, like concentration. The qualities of love and compassion and forgiveness can be strengthened through our efforts. And so we pay attention to that and we begin to We begin to choose ways that actually will make these factors strong. One of the things that strengthens the quality of metta or loving-kindness is to try to relate to the good qualities in people. We're all a mixed bag when we have nice things, and we have some unwholesome things. And just to see how our mind is relating both, both inwardly to ourselves and to other people. Is it fixating on what's wrong with people? Or is it opening to what's actually the good qualities in people? It's the latter which is the cause for loving feeling to arise. And so it's just to, to turn the mind in that direction, to have a sense of appreciation for the fact that we all have this mixture, to acknowledge that and then to appreciate the wholesome aspects that are in everybody. Working with forgiveness is a tremendous, tremendously freeing and opening quality. Instead of holding on to our resentment or our anger or our fear. To be forgiving, to forgive ourselves, to forgive other people, to start again. Forgiveness is the forgiveness comes from an increased awareness of impermanence the more we see that everything's in change. Everything in ourselves, in other people, in the world, the more we see that, the easier it is to forgive. Non-forgiveness means that we're making something solid. We're making something fixed. Either a person or a past action and we're not allowing for this natural process of change. We're not acknowledging it. Strengthening the compassion within us. Not being afraid to feel the suffering that's in ourselves and in other people. Not constructing our lives so that it is always an avoidance of that. It's to the degree that we construct these barriers around ourselves to try to keep out any awareness of suffering, then we are also keeping out any possibility of compassion. This also is part of our practice in the world. It's such a... Our lives, our lives provide endless opportunities for the cultivation of different aspects of the Dharma. And so when we hold our lives in this context, then really our life becomes our practice, not just 10 days or two weeks a year. One area which I've also found really helpful in deepening the understanding in our daily lives is coming to appreciate what we can learn from times of difficulty. Now we find ourselves at different times in difficult situations, whether it's at work or our interpersonal relationships or with different aspects of society or the government or 
around environmental issues. There's a whole range of things, a whole range of situations that may present difficulties for us. If we find ourselves suffering, if we find ourselves in difficulty, instead of blaming, instead of looking only outside to the external, the external situation, let those difficulties be a signal in the mind to actually investigate inside what is going on. What is happening in the mind that is causing this difficulty, this suffering? Where is the attachment? Where is the fear? Where is the identification? What am I holding on to? What am I afraid of? There's tremendous depth of understanding that can come from that investigation. The Four Noble Truths are right there. Every time we investigate suffering, we are actually cultivating the Four Noble Truths. We're acknowledging the suffering. We are looking to see what the causes are, not externally, but rather in how we're relating to the situation. We see the cause of suffering. We see the possibility of the end of suffering. And we understand that it's through that power of awareness and investigation that is the path to the end of it. It's a very direct application. And so we can really look on those times of difficulty as a gift to us if we use them rather than drowning in them. Sometimes consciously recollecting things, conscious recollections, can also be very helpful. The recollection of impermanence. Just remembering how quickly things are changing. And they seem to be going at a faster and faster pace. And certainly, <laughs> it's my experience, and I think it's a general one, that as we get older, it seems to be going by faster and faster. And somebody left me a wonderful note this morning uh, saying that they had heard this woman on a TV talk show saying that from age, I guess she was around 55 or so, from 55, she seemed to be having breakfast every 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like that. It just seems, you know, when we're young, a year loomed like it was eternity, a whole year at school. <laughs> now a year is nothing. You know, we just kind of turn around and you're back here again next year. <laughs> it's going very, very fast. And so we really have to make very good use of the time because before we know it, this life is over and you find that you find that understanding reflected over and over again in the Buddha's teaching. And it's, it's obvious. But there's an implied responsibility that we have when we understand that. And that is not just to let it slip by. We actually can create and fashion our lives. We have that power. We have that freedom. We have that ability. We don't simply have to slide along. But it takes effort. It takes the same effort that you were generating here in a different form, in a different context. It's not going to happen by itself. There has to be the effort to sit every day there has to be the effort to come back again and again to the body, to stay grounded, to stay centered, to use the body. It takes the effort to look at 
times when there's a strong emotional response and we're caught and we're identified, what's going on there? How are we relating to it? It's not, it's not pushing emotions away. It's learning how to understand what's happening. It's making the effort to pay attention to our actions. What are the effects? What are the effects in the moment? What are the long-term effects? It takes an effort to strengthen the qualities of love and compassion and forgiveness. It doesn't just happen by itself. But as we generate the effort, it becomes more and more a natural part of how we're living our lives. We begin to live the Dharma. One, one teaching from His Holiness Karmapa, who is the head of one of the great Tibetan lineages who died a couple of years ago, he said that, and this is a paraphrase, that with 100% effort and courage, we are not only doing our practice, we are living it. And that's the transition we have to make from something we do part-time to something we are living. And then we begin to experience the fruit of the Dharma in so many ways in our lives. This is our challenge as we leave the we leave the situation of a retreat and begin to bring it and apply it and live it in our lives. Do you have any questions you'd like to discuss? Some of you had uh, written some questions on notes to me which I did not have a chance to answer. So this would be an opportunity if there's anything either about the practice or about you know, bringing the practice outside. I have a question about the question about how you are relating to the situation. Is that a rational or emotional inquiry? Or is it a reflection or a thinking thing about the situation or dependent on the situation? The question was, is this investigation of how we're relating to an emotion or an intense situation is it an ideational process? Is it something we think about um, or not? Is it something else? I don't see it so much as thinking about it. One might ask the question in the mind. Just as an example, when that anger was very strong and I was looking and looking and then there was that shift, the question that effected the shift was how am I getting hooked? I was hooked into that. I was lost and I was identified with it. And so when I asked myself the question, how am I getting hooked? It's not as a thought that you want an answer to. That's not the purpose of asking the question. The purpose of asking the question is to shift the perspective, shift the place from which you're looking. And so when we're, when we're investigating, how is the mind relating to this? It's a way of observing whether or not there is identification with it, whether there's detachment, whether there's mindfulness of it. Do you follow? And so it's not a question of thinking about what's causing the anger or what's causing the difficulty. It's just becoming aware of how the mind how the mind is holding that emotion, how it's relating to it. Is this 
make any sense? You'll see it in the <laughs> as you as you do it, as you experiment with it. You, I think it'll be quite clear, you know, in the actual doing of it. It's 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 really another way of saying or asking oneself, "Am I being mindful?" It's just using other words to say that. I was talking to somebody yesterday about the situation when I was in Burma this last time, and it was the practice situation was very, very difficult. It was incredibly noisy, just loudspeakers, and it was very, very noisy all the time. And the food was not good, lots of difficulties. And I found my mind complaining a lot. I was just <laughs> this internal, internal monologue of complaint. And it was conditioning. It was conditioning my whole experience. At a certain point, it was like that shift took place. How is the mind relating to that complaining? I had been identified with it. And to the degree that I was identified, it just influenced and conditioned everything. In the moment of seeing it just as a complaining mind, shifting the perspective, Rather than being lost in and identified with it, I started to look, how is the mind relating to that? That created some dis... Oh, complaining, complaining. It was amazing, just in, in the moment of actually being mindful. The whole thing fell away. It didn't change the noise and it didn't improve the food. But it certainly improved the mental environment. And that's within our power. That's why we are not, whether we are suffering or not, is not dependent on the external situation. It may be unpleasant, but we don't have to add to it our own mental suffering. And that's the great power of the practice. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Common experience. Um, there are different ways to practice with that kind of situation, where the, where the thoughts just keep kind of sneaking in, you know, and before you know it, you're lost in it again. When you are aware of thought in the background, but it's still not strong enough to actually have pulled you away from the primary object. And so you, you still have a, <laughs> a finger hold on the breath. But you're aware, there's, there's some awareness that in the background all this is going on. Let that be a signal to you to zoom in closer to the primary object. That's some kind of sign that you're with the breath, but as if from a bit of a distance. And in that space, it's easy for the mind to have this other stuff going on. When you're aware of that and you take it as a feedback, okay, there's this stuff going on, that means the attention is not close enough. So you just arouse a little more effort. It's like, it's like putting the zoom lens on the camera. You just zoom in more and more microscopically then you'll see that as your attention becomes more complete on the breath, the rest of the mind becomes more silent. So that's one way. You want to take it as a feedback. 
The second way, which might be of interest to do sometimes, I have a tremendous fascination with discovering the nature of thought. To me, it is one of the most fascinating phenomena. What is a thought? We have billions of them. They dominate our lives. We are pulled around by our thoughts. But how often do we actually take the time what is it as a phenomenon? Not the particular content, but just what is that experience of this thing which in itself is so totally ephemeral. It's, it's, not, it's ghost-like. You know, it's, there is nothing substantial about it. And yet, because we have not looked carefully at it, <laughs> we are ruled by them. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing the extent to which we are enslaved by our thoughts. And yet in the moment, and you've seen this many, many times now in the retreat, in the moment that you see it, what happens? It's gone. This whole big thing, gone. Okay, so one way, and one way which I found really interesting, when thoughts are happening a lot, you know, they keep on making those end runs. Turn your attention totally to waiting for thoughts, watching thoughts. It's, uh, sometimes the image comes of sitting in a movie theater, you know, and you're just kind of settled back and you're watching the screen. And you're just waiting for the thoughts to come. And because you're waiting for them, you'll pick them up quite Quickly, not only that, you'll be glad that they came because that's what you're waiting for. Right? And so just the thought, oh, look at that, it's gone. The, the game of it is that you create a screen out here yeah, and all these thoughts come and then there's going to be one that comes from behind. Oh, I'm doing well. <laughs> that's, that's not a thought that's out in front. That's, you need a 360 degree screen. Yeah. And just, you know, it's like, you catch them just as they arise. And it's possible when you devote all of your effort to just sitting and waiting for them. I don't recommend that as an ongoing practice. <laughs> but actually, it, it's not so easy to get lost. I think if you do it in that way, with that strong intent, to at that time you're not with the breath, you're not with sensations. Your only intent is to sit there and wait for them to appear. And it's, it's the video game of the mind. <laughs> it's interesting. It's just so interesting to, because it gives you a very clear understanding and perception of just what that phenomena is. <coughs> then when you come back, you know, in doing the regular practice of the breath and noting different things, you will have developed some greater facility for being aware of them. So it's just a, it's like a little game or exercise to do sometime. In the moment of noting thinking, you're not lost in it. You may note thinking and then in the next moment not be noting and the thought may grab you. Okay, could you describe again what happens? Right. Okay. That tone of voice of the note, it sounded, as you said that, that it wasn't actually mindfulness. It's, 
what I heard, as you said, and it, this is very common, thinking, 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 right? that there's some kind of judgment, aversion, not wanting, not a simple acknowledgement. Oh, thinking, thinking, thinking. The mindfulness is, ve- the mind, it's very delicate what's actually mindfulness and what's a judgment. Right? Do you follow? I think you'll find that if you soften the note, let, let the tone of voice of the note be a feedback to you about the quality of the mind. Because if there's aversion in the mind towards the object, that is not mindfulness. If there's attachment in the mind, oh, thinking. <laughs> That's not mindfulness. (laughs) It's a very exact space where there's recognition. You see what's there. No attachment, no aversion. And that's just another, another skillful aspect of the noting as a tool because the tone can reflect back to you the quality of the mind. Okay. The question was in, in that exercise of just sitting there and waiting for thoughts to appear. And I'd like to emphasize that I see it just as a particular exercise, not as the ongoing practice. Um, the question of who's waiting. What's happening there is there's consciousness, there's mindfulness, there's effort, right, there's attention. There are all these factors of mind. There's no one. There's no one behind it. It's just uh, the cultivation of certain qualities of consciousness with thought as the object. There is an abbreviated uh, description of it in one of the chapters in my book. Um, Mostly what it's just been the, the understanding of it has been culled from a lot of different sources. What I would suggest, I think, is there's an organization in Sri Lanka it's called the Buddhist Publication Society, which publishes just a wide range of Buddhist texts and essays and lots of different things. If you wrote to them, and we can put the address on the board, asking for a book or a booklet, particularly about karma, I'm sure they have it. You know, it's probably like a compendium of different sources. Uh-huh. Carol said that there is one book called Kama and its Fruit. Just as a point of information, it's sometimes it gets a little confusing because we use both the Pali and Sanskrit terms. Karma, K-A-R-M-A, is Sanskrit. Kama, K-A-M-M-A, is the Pali. And this would be in the Pali. There's a book in the library that's published by the BPS called Buddha on his teachings, and it's, it's a thick book, and it has a section on karma that explains a lot about it. Um, what happens to your attention and focus right now when you're talking about mindfulness? Mm-hmm. I found generally, 
Yeah, the question was, what happens to your focus when you're talking or listening? It's a real challenge <laughs> to stay mindful when you're talking because the tendency is just to get really caught up in the words and your consciousness is like you're out here someplace. I found it very helpful as much as possible just to keep a, a thread of connection with the body, letting the words come out of the posture. And so there's just a greater sense of being grounded rather than just totally lost in the words. Obviously, you can't have that microscopic attention on the sensations in body or you lose the thread. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. The mindfulness of the body has wide-range application because <laughs> it's a major part of our experience. <laughs> I mean, it's not some tiny little thing you have to go looking for. It's... You know, <laughs> and it's amazing that we pay so little attention, considering how big a part of our experience it is. Yeah. And so it's just to to get into that habit. Basically, I see it as a concept that has certain uses. If you find that your life is being run by time, by that concept, you know, in ways that are not helpful, then it may be this not enough understanding or too much identification with the reality of it with the as a concept, not seeing that it's a concept and that it's something we create. On the other hand, it's not to suggest that it doesn't have uses. And I don't see any particular problem in you know, saying, okay, for the next 45 minutes I'm going to sit, 45 minutes I'm going to walk. If it feels like that's imprisoning, then it's giving too much weight to the concept. One alternative might be just to experiment for a while and not use, you know, just say, I'll just sit as long as I sit or I'll walk as long as I walk, just as a way of counterbalancing it. But I think you can come to a middle ground where you use it in a skillful way and are not burdened by it, realizing that it's just a construct of our minds that, that could be used skillfully. Yes, but, uh, but as the mindfulness and concentration develop, 
And as one goes through the various stages of insight, There's, there's much, much less wandering. If the mind is not drawn out by thought, less thoughts come. But they still might. They still might just you know, come in the moment. There's a quicker and quicker attention and awareness to them. So this scene is just another object which come and go. So definitely not. <laughs> no, 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 no. Everything, it all unfolds organically out of simply paying attention to what is arising. And so with the awareness of thought, what's more important than trying not to think, which is not a very successful endeavor, would be to cultivate an awareness as close to the beginning as possible and then let what happens happen. Yeah, well, it's a different it's a different track of practice, although it's certainly complementary to vipassana. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe less. This is going to be a 30-second encapsulation. (laughs) There are two main tracks of meditation. One is the track of concentration.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.